Hello, my geeselings. I am currently shivering because I just finished my morning pint of ice cream. Today was Talenti gelato vanilla caramel swirl. I've shifted the location of my microphone because of last week's audio problems. Pins the cat likes to sit on my lap while I'm recording these episodes and these introductions, though right now she's happily sleeping with Mishka, the Vishla, and she likes to bat at the, at the cord and uh, purr beside the, I don't know what this, I don't know, the, the receiver, I don't know what you would call it, obviously it's the microphone, but anyway, so she makes a lot of noise, so I've, I have changed the positioning of my tripod to accommodate her, anyway. This is the introduction to Robinson's podcast, episode 25, with my very close friend, Ethan Hoppy. He was the guest of, I think, episodes 2 and 13. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure 2 is correct. I'm not sure about 13, but we're already too deep into this introduction for me to check. And in our first episode, we talked about his experience in Air Force boot camp because he is a violinist with the United States Air Force. And in the second episode, we talked more about his training at Yale and just how he views himself as a violinist and some of the more, I don't know, conceptual or to me, interesting aspects of playing music. This episode, we talk about some history of music, medieval music, uh, for one, the idea that Mozart would write new stuff every week and people wouldn't even play it multiple times kind of blew my mind. Uh, but Ethan also teaches me some very basic things like what a harmony is. And then again, we talk about some more interesting, maybe philosophical ideas. So about how powerful it must have been to listen to music. 500 years ago when your life was just consumed by uh, arduous labor and music must have been very transcendental and powerful to hear almost otherworldly and when put in that context it makes sense why it played such a role in religious experience then uh, on a more practical level we talk a, a lot about memory and memorizing music and other things. So right now, Ethan is about to give a performance at the White House for their Halloween party, and he has to memorize the Game of Thrones theme song. And obviously that's going to be very easy for him to do, given the difficulty of the actual music he's trained to play. But it's still fun to talk about and how he deals with memorizing material for high-stakes situations, because I was reflecting on having to memorize speeches or presentations for school, and as soon as I would get up in front of the class, I'd forget everything. And so that is this episode. I'm very happy with it. I'm very happy to talk to Ethan. I love him. He's a great guy. And I hope you enjoy the episode.
I decided to mildly dress up for the occasion today. You look good. And with uh, the cat in my lap, the like semi-hairless cat, I very much feel like Dr. Evil right now <laughs> in my uh, my chair and lair. But Ethan is joining us again today from Washington, D.C., and I offered to buy him a nicer mic because the audio was bothering me, but lo and behold, he had one. So now he he sounds nice and crispy, but we also get the pleasure so, of listening to his wife uh, practice viola, right? Yeah, she's in the other room practicing viola. Uh, Strauss. What is opera. a viola? Viola, it's a violin, but slightly bigger, but you still hold it on your shoulder. So it's like a violin and a, and a cello had a child. Um, kind of, but it's much closer to the violin. The, the strings okay. are the same uh, as a cello, but an octave higher, but it's played like a violin. Are they both in an orchestra? Yes. Viola often has like middle lines, harmonies. Uh, it blends really well and has like a very sort of gentle sound, but it doesn't project as well because it's in the middle of range usually. Like, you know, it's not the highest, not the lowest. So, uh, yeah, typically they play the harmony and very rarely play melody. So, I don't so, know. People, so, make, people like to make fun of the viola for that, a lot of that reason. Now, can you replicate the sound of a viola on a violin or can a cello replicate the sound of a viola or does the viola hit like some spot that the other two just can't reach? Uh, the timbre is different. Um, and what's timbre? When you say timbre, I think amber. And then I think, I think, I don't know, like almost sensual quality of wood. That's what I think. <laughs> Well, it's like, say, like the quality of my voice, say, it's my voice is kind of pinched and like it sounds like I'm talking through my nose, you know? A so that's bit. with timbre. But we both have voices you know, and our vocal cords are basically like pretty much the same thing, you know? But for some reason, we have different sounding voices. But for violin and viola, it's even different. It's even more of a drastic difference because like, they're constructed differently. Apparently, the viola is closer to the human voice in its range and its just like qualities in some ways. But uh, I don't really know the science, but something about the ratio is imperfect in the viola. That is like, you know, hmm. the, the 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 ratio of the string length to the length of the body or something like that uh it's not like mathematically ideal so that's why it doesn't project like it's not as loud as a violin or a cello that's quite fascinating to me that there's this imperfect element in the orchestra uh, or and, and which leads me i guess to my next question i so i was sitting in the gym and well, I wasn't sitting. I was I, no, I was sitting between sets on the leg press, and I was thinking, all right, what should I ask Ethan about today? And it 
occurred to me when you're playing music, uh, you're playing music that I, so you can say Mozart's name and I have no idea if Mozart was alive in 1500 or 1800. I have no idea. You're just playing old people's music is uh, essentially what I'm thinking. And so I wanted to ask about that and why it is that you're still playing today in an orchestra music that was written hundreds of years ago. Whereas when I'm like walking down the street, I want to be listening to music maybe that was from the past 30 years. Yet this talk about the violin and the viola and the cello now has me wondering or thinking about Mozart or his contemporaries. Or I, I mean, I know Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven. Those are the three big names. They, and I'm really speaking out of my ken here, but I'm just going to imagine that at some point, somebody came up with the idea of what an orchestra should be, what instruments should be in it, uh, what their sound should be, because they're trying to somehow create a sonic whole of sorts to convey the, the music that they want to write and the sounds that they want to project. And I'm wondering what you think. This is a really me, dragging me, on a long question. I, okay. I, I have a lot to say. You don't even need to formulate a question. So okay. like, let's start <laughs> with like the history of the instruments themselves. They all sort of um, came out of um, these middle middle evil instruments viols middle uh, evil medieval middle ages <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh they came out of the viol you said viol. that's one instrument it is sort of a group of instruments but in the middle ages like everything was just sort of dinky like if it made a sound it was kind of an instrument like there was no like high tradition. It was just like everything was like, I guess I would say instrumental music was sort of plebeian and church music, which was uh, vocal was the highbrow music. And so instruments were used like more popular music type thing fiddle or like dancing or something like that yeah anyways in, in the pub yeah in the so, pub uh <laughs> so viols sort of developed um they had viol concerts consorts which are like groups of viols uh and they thought of them all as the same instrument but they were just different sizes and then that's sort of what became the violin, viola, and cello, and bass, um, the string instrument family. Uh, and that, I would say, solidified in the, well, 1600s is when the golden age of violin like the Stradivarius have you heard of that violin maker yeah oh that was in the 1600s uh 
no, actually he was in the 1700s, but his teachers were also uh, in Cremona, Italy, um, and making like great instruments for like a hundred years before him. So uh, that was sort of the golden age of violin making. And I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen like those uh, Washington Post articles about uh, comparing these Stradivarius to these new instruments and like saying that they're no, I have not ever seen an article like that in my life. Uh, so many people <laughs> forward me those articles saying, oh, this $10 million instrument sounds just like a $20,000 modern instrument. Well, it's funny. I was talking to somebody about fitness yesterday and I used the phrase like GPP, which is something that everybody in at least like the strength world knows. And he'd never heard of it. And then I was like, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, we get into our bubbles and then we forget how specialized our knowledge is. Yeah. Anyways, so the instruments came about and these composers, they were writing Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven. They were writing, well, pre-Beethoven, they were writing music for like next week. And Bach especially, he would write a new freaking cantata every single week. A new freaking cantata. <laughs> so they were not reusing music very rarely. Mozart wow. would write, he would write whole concerts and it would be barely even finished. He wouldn't write out all the notes. He would just sort of write notes and then know where, uh, you know, what he meant by those things because he was playing his own music. So uh, it didn't become a museum culture like a tradition, a canon, until Beethoven, actually. And when Beethoven, was that? Beethoven, um, 1880, no, sorry, 1780 until he died in 1829 or 30. So right around 1800, he was composing most of his work 1800 to uh, 1830. Uh, and that, like, he was recognized as the best composer. He was like a superstar. And he was the first composer to sort of not take a job as, in a, in, as a being, he wouldn't have a patron of like, like he had patrons, aristocrats and uh, rich people and stuff would give him money to write things, but he wasn't on the payroll of like a king or a prince or something or a church. So he was sort of in, in his own independent figure. Um, and he was, it's kind of funny. People sort of talk of him like he's Howard Rourke. You know, uh, mm -hmm. all he Antigua. cared about was his work and he was dedicated to it. And also, like, he wouldn't take shit from anybody. And he was like an independent thing. He was like, I, I'm, I'm my own, like, aristocrat. And he wanted, you know, before that, the musicians were sort of lower tier in society. But he was like, no, I'm a rock star. But also he was crazy and he was deaf and he was, he had a lot of problems. So he had some 
you know, social issues. But um, yeah, that's that's when people sort of started thinking, you know what, we should probably play this. We should it, this. We should listen to this piece again because a lot of his music, people just didn't get it on the first listen. You know, he was ahead of his time. So, so to people listening to his music, it was like, this is weird. This is really, really dissonant and like nothing like we've heard before. Anyways, uh, there's a lot of, so that's sort of where like in the mid 1800s, music history, music college, music history like started because before that it was just music. And they didn't really, it wasn't as important. I mean, obviously they all learned from each other. So there's, there's that uh, lineage, but it wasn't a field in itself, music history. And then, so then after Beethoven, people like that weren't musicians or weren't trained to perform music, they would study the history of music itself. Um, and that became like a museum. And nowadays we do still, we do play uh, contemporary music and it's becoming more of a thing. I mean, there's always a push for it because people are always saying classical music is dying and everything. Um, but a lot of people just still like the classics, 200 year old works. Right. So do you think I, I guess going back to my question, I mean, you gave me a lot of information, but do you, was it a conscious decision by some person or collective that resulted in orchestras having somebody, did somebody just legislate, okay, we have violins for the high end, cellos for the low end, and then we want to achieve this dissonance by adding the viol the viola in there? Uh no, for the most part, it just sort of came together because of how things were done. But typically, like, in, you need three. It's nice to have four voices It in anything. Like, a chord, just two notes isn't enough to have a full harmony because you either, either have a third, which is not fully if you're saying a triad is like one three and five that's like a full harmony but then oftentimes you want the upper octave one as well so that's a full drawn out chord so it just makes sense to have at least four voices so like if you're talking about having a string section i think it sort of developed organically based on what sounded good but in a lot of cases Composers just wrote for whatever musicians they happen to have on hand. So like whoever the uh, Duke was employing as part of their orchestra, that's what the composer wrote for. So it wasn't all, oh, yeah. sometimes it wasn't that thought out either. And then there's some pieces that are just wonkily, just wonky orchestrations, especially if it's chamber music. It's like, you know, sometimes you'll have like, guitar and bassoon or something. Hmm. 
Unfortunately, like we've we've reached a point where as soon as you start talking about triads and dyads and four voices yeah, and chord and that. octaves, <laughs> well, we 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 come to a point where I'm unable to follow any longer. I've noticed that recently. I've I've had some interviews with physicists and. I've never taken a physics class. So there's only so far I can get in the conversation with what I've picked up from listening to podcasts. Uh, And I can ask questions that make sense to me. Like, is time continuous or atomic? Uh, But then once a physicist starts answering this question and has to go into quantum gravity or string theory then i i i lose them which i find very frustrating because i have all these questions that i want answers to but that i lacked the i lack the tools to grasp yeah well it's not it wasn't really necessary to bring that up i think the simple answer is just it just sounds good to have okay but the, like the way that the orchestra it kind of is laid out the foundation of it but a lot of composers will have changed like an orchestra in mozart's time was much smaller it was just a string section an oboe um maybe a small percussion like a snare drum or a triangle or something or a timpani uh french horns that was it. And then you fast forward 200 years and you have Strauss or Mahler, which is a hundred person group with a huge brass and trombones didn't even exist uh, when Mozart was living. Trombones were, were invented for Wagner opera. opera. So it, things have changed. And like in over the course of, I guess you could say that class, Western classical music history has lasted right now like a thousand years. So having an instrument that's 150 years old, it's kind of new. Here's a, a question of, that's more practical for me. So as you well know, since you've read a lot of my books, I some of the things I've written are fantasy, and that's what I'm writing now. And... You know how in Game of Thrones there's the reigns of Castamir? Do you remember that song? Did uh, you read all of the Song of Ice and Fire? I read, yeah, I read the five books. Like the five books. Well, the yeah. reigns of Castamir is just like a a tavern song that they sing, and it's telling the tale of how the Lannister house, I think, extinguished uh, the Castamirs. Okay. But anyway, or if or if you uh, read Lord of the Rings or something. There are songs or poems or things on every page. Yeah. And I mean, that's hyperbolic, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I rem- yeah. And they have a lot of elfish a- poetry. Yeah. And as I write, I wonder slash struggle about how and if I want to incorporate music into my fantasy world. And I do, but not in depth. I mean it's more in the background. Somebody's on his fiddle in in the pub or the tavern. Yeah. But I I do wonder and obviously I could 
figure out pretty easily with a cursory Google search just what role music played in in the 14 or 1500s. Like, was it just... And so you mentioned that all of those instruments were more uh, tavern fare, and then did you say that church music was typically choral or, or yeah. oral vocal? Yeah. Um, so it's funny, actually, the harmonies were very different uh, without getting too in the detail of that. But uh, there was this one harmony that they thought was like, what's the a devil. harmony? Uh, just a combination of two notes, like vertically. Like melody Can is you sort do of... one in your in your oral, orally? No, because I can only sing one one note at once. Note at a time. Yeah. Okay. So like anything vertical, like two lines, ha- two notes happening at the same time, the relationship between them is that's a harmony. Yeah. So. Well, okay. So you say a relationship between them. If you just have two notes vertically played at the same time, I wouldn't say that that's a relationship. That's an accident. But if over the course of a bar you have two notes, let's just say figuratively dancing with one another, that's a relationship. So is the single instance a harmony, or do you need this so, collection of yeah, instances okay. if it's out of sequentially context, to be a harmony? That's a good point. If it's out of context and it's just two simultaneous notes, it's an interval. But if there's no context, you don't know what it means. And typically harmony is describing, uh, you know, where it's coming from, where it's going to, that's the point of, of uh, understanding something harmonically. But um, okay, yeah, so uh, middle-aged music, they use a lot of fourths and fifths, which are um, intervals like, like they sound very open and pure. Actually, um, so there's a math um, connection here. So Pythagoras, um, he first came up with these uh, ratios, ratios of the um, basically harmonic structure. I, I don't, it's kind of hard to explain and I don't always grasp it fully unless I've refreshed myself. But basically there's a way of looking at relationships between notes that is mathematically um, I don't know it mathematically makes it's sense okay. so <laughs> sure, sure anyway so he he bases music his uh, mathematic analysis of music on these intervals fourths and fifths so the interval between a fourth and a fifth an augmented fourth they thought of as devil's tone because it's it's uh in the middle ages or pythagoras uh middle ages so they thought a quarter note or you're saying like repeated four four bars of i'm not following a fourth you're having to teach me very basic uh, like music terminology here okay so many people listening probably don't know what it is an example of a fourth is say the first the First interval, and here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. Ba-dum, ba-dum. That's a fourth. Ba-dum. So if those two notes happen at the same time, that would be a fourth. And it sounds very pure and 
you would associate but is it because it. it's like two eighth notes or because it's no because does it have of, anything to do with notes what makes it a fourth it it doesn't have anything to do with the rhythm what a fourth is just describing the distance between the pitches oh i see so the distance between the notes on the on the page on the in the measure measure the the, the line the staff basically. yeah 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 okay so then a fifth is just slightly larger like uh twinkle 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 okay so in between you is the interval uh a tritone which uh actually from west side why Story, is that in between because it's a half step like Shouldn't it be smaller than a fourth? <laughs> it's it's larger than a fourth and smaller than a fifth. Because a fourth... Like, say, a fourth is C to F, right? And then okay. C to G. I'll just take your word for it. <laughs> Anyways, um, Maria, Maria, like Maria in West Side Story. You know that song? Nope. Well... I'll just trust mind. you. I'm, I'm following you. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that 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 was the the devil's uh, interval, and they never used it. Anyways, uh, in in a lot of the fantasy uh, worlds, they don't re- talk about church music at all. And well, that was most of what we learned about when we learned about music history. Uh, maybe that's because there's just the most record of that like all the other music was oral tradition and church music uh, eventually became written down so there's more of a record and also it was just more organized so the western classical tradition that i play came more directly from the church music than from uh pub music you know Mm -hmm. but I, it must have been so much more powerful back then. Just what must have been so much more powerful? Listening to music, you know, when your whole life I, is like just living in squalor and having there's no entertainment. Like you have to literally work for everything, and to have somebody play music, that must have been nuts. Yeah, I can see that. Like, now it's just commonplace. It's everywhere. Right. You don't even hear it. The elevator, you know? Just don't even mm-hmm. pay attention to it. But I can see when you put it that way. Is that apple juice? This is a combination of water and mango juice. Fake mango juice. Okay, I, you know? I had a feeling you would be diluting your juice. Yeah. That's what I was... <laughs> I'm I'm disappointed in that. Uh, Gabe the other day. It's just pure. Our friend Gabe Popich from high school the other day, he asked me how I felt. So I've been eating these. Are you familiar with the brand Talenti? I'm just going to go ahead and say no for you. Yeah, gelato. Okay, really? Okay, I'm impressed. Anyway, so (laughs) they have these these pints called gelato layers, where. Like today, I had their blackberry vanilla 
parfait gelato layers and the bottom they put a, a layer of like oat oats or granola or something then it was vanilla a layer of vanilla gelato then it was a layer of blueberry sauce and then it was a layer of oats and then it was a layer of blackberry gelato and gabe asked me he's like how do you feel about these layers i think that they're just it's just a scheme to get you to eat the whole pint and my <laughs> initial reaction was if you're not eating the whole pint then you're doing it entirely wrong and you don't deserve to be eating ice cream and that's somehow some that is pretty much exactly how i feel about diluting juice you remind me of my grandmother who used to do that but anyway i don't like it if it's too to, sweet no i don't i don't I, I, yeah also there's something wrong with your i disagree with the pint too because i i don't know i'd rather have just yeah. a little <laughs> yeah that's that's a, a case where an opinion can be wrong <laughs> objectively but mm-hmm uh, now I've been distracted by the mango juice and the ice cream. Let's see. Well, we were talking about what were we just talking about? What were you? What was I interrupting you? Uh, listening to music in the Middle Ages when you had no stimulation oh, okay. or okay. entertainment or anything. Right. When you when you put it that way, and you probably don't. I even can know just how to imagine read. how. Yeah, you probably don't know how to read. But when you hear music, it it must be so different from anything in typical experience that it seems magical like you can see why it's part of the church or church proceedings because it in a strange like when i put this ice cream on my tongue it is in some ways like otherworldly it's tapping into a sense that i don't experience just walking around and it's very hard to explain but there's some, I don't know, I mean, as somebody who really likes ice cream, there's something very transcendental about it. And there's something yeah. similar to be said about music. Yeah, So I can sure. see how, just as you would want to have music in the church as a way of worship or facilitating a transcendental experience, I can also see how certain forms of music m might, I don't know, trigger you to associate it with the devil, which is fascinating. And also those cathedrals, like those churches they had, music sounds way better in there. It's just such a resonant space. And a lot of times they, they built it intentionally so that it would have good acoustics or mm -hmm. just very vibrant acoustics making the space like a whole sort of, you know, transcendent soundscape. And mm -hmm. I'm sure their homes made of bricks and hay. And if they went, whenever they were listening to music outside of church, it was either outside, which unamplified just sounds terrible. Like it's hard to get music to sound good outside because the sound just sort of dissipates. Hmm. So, yeah, I bet that was a huge part of church and religion. But yeah, do you know so, what? But it never what comes sort of up music? in fantasy novels. That it like its role in religion. 
Yeah, it's always the other oral. Oh, well, it's about to. It's about <laughs> to now that we've had this discussion. I'm going to have to make a note of that. Uh, change the fantasy music game. Can you hear the cat purring? Yeah. Okay, that's that is... funny. I I hope some audio people before this moment just assumed that that was me purring, and that I also I also hope that as she's been like licking herself, that has also come up on the audio, and people think that I'm just grooming myself with my tongue as <laughs> you and I are having this conversation. So, what have you been practicing lately? Well, let me rephrase that question. I don't really care <laughs> what piece you've been playing because it's just ir- irrelevant to me. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know it. Uh, but I mean, what have you been thinking about while while you've been practicing? Because that I always find interesting. Um, I guess there's a few things. One, I have been learning, having to learn new tunes because we do, um, we do sort of this memorized uh strolling violin shtick where we memorize tunes and play sort of tunes that people know so actually we are i am memorizing when you say the, strolling violin you mean like marching around the white house playing the violin well we more do it at dinner parties usually indoors so we'll go around the tables and play broadway tunes and stuff that people know but since Halloween is coming, we are doing a show at the White House, uh, and Game of Thrones is on it. As oh, actually, yeah. So That's just funny. the the theme, though, not you yeah. know from the movie, not from yeah. Anyways, or from the show. Uh, so I have to memorize these things, and it is kind of interesting to observe how my memory sort of develops because you you don't have the mnemonic devices that you can use when you're memorizing words or things like that of uh like you're just memorizing pitch and melody and what i notice the most when i'm working on that memorizing thing because it's kind of black and white. Like you can either play from memory or you can't or, or there's holes in it, but like, um, you know, it's something that you can measure more easily than if you're improving generally the violin, you know, is how much it changes after sleeping. Like how much I I'll work on something, go to sleep and come back to it the next morning and it's improved. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. No, I hear you. Uh, This is, I think, just a conceptually interesting problem. So, and it was a problem I was thinking about last night for one of my classes. Say you have two beliefs that you're justified in believing. Yeah. And together, they entail logically so whenever they're true, we can just say that whenever they're true, they entail a third belief. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah. And 
can you come up with an instance in which you have these two beliefs that are so logically connected to a third belief, but then you're not justified in believing the third belief, even if these two, um, that's like, like uh, sort of the third one has to be true if the first two are true. And that's like two things that taste great separately, but together they don't taste good. Something like that. I, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. I don't know. Maybe you could come up. Maybe you could come up with um, an example like that. But the idea was, I had to come up with just like a counter example for this, and. I went to bed thinking about it and I was having trouble thinking of like a decent counter example. And then this morning I woke up and I just had it and I don't know. So the, the idea I had was, okay, say that you, you've just taken three quarters of physics and based on the reading material provided to you by your professor, all of the exercises you've done, what your professor has told you, you've been, you now have a justified belief that the world is deterministic. And then, so that's, that's the first premise that you, you now have a justified belief in. Maybe that, that could totally be a minority view in physics departments after three semesters of physics. I don't know, but uh, for the story's sake, we, we can just need to imagine that this is possible. Then the other view that you have is, I mean, you've been taking philosophy for three quarters and you've been, you've learned to believe, or you've, you've gotten the belief after all of your studies that in a deterministic world, there is no room for free will. Yeah. Free will. So from these two justified beliefs, it follows that you have no free will. Uh, if we live in a, if, if we live in this world and this world is deterministic, but then you don't really have a justified belief in this conclusion, even though it logically follows from the first two, because you already have independent evidence uh, from your entire life that you, you, you really do have free will. So it, that, that's just, I mean, but that the point was just that that came up to me as a good example, like after sleeping without, I mean, without having really thought of that before going to bed. Yeah, anyway. there's something about it that solidifies. Yeah. So what else I'm working on is... Um, well, no, let, let's um, talk more about the memory. So what... Okay. <laughs> so what do I do to memorize when... Like, so I, sure. if well, I'm learning the second violin part and it's like not a memory, it's just random notes... Sure. A, I mean, just tell me. I mean, there's one way you could do it is just memorizing the fingering, like what finger you use on what string. But I actually think that's um, only effective in certain cases. I only use that like because it, it's something tangible. And I only use that, say once in a while for something that I can't get stuck in my ear. Basically the process I would describe it is getting something stuck in your head enough so that you can recall it. 
uh, like easily. And I guess if you play through something once, say if it's just three or four bars, some things make it easier to remember. Like if it's symmetrical, um, like if the phrase is symmetrical or intuitive that the way that it goes up and comes down, it sort of makes sense and it's balanced. But if it's kind of all over the place, uh, it makes it harder and you have to rely more on those remembering where, which finger you're putting down, like just the finger itself, which is like, I mean, tangibly how you're playing the instrument, how you're playing the song, but it has nothing to do with the music itself. So I feel like it's kind of a cop out. One thing that I wonder if you use maybe you do maybe you maybe you know you use it maybe you don't or maybe you use it unconsciously is even though you don't have mnemonic devices the same way you have with uh, linguistic objects you can still pay attention to the story of the song or the emotional changes because I recall when I used to memorize poetry, I mean, that was something. I mean, you could, if you forgot a word, you might still remember how the mood shifted at a certain point. And maybe just recalling that shift in mood might tell you, oh, this is what that next stanza was. This is what the word is. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes there's changes in texture and quality that I use as landmarks. What's the most difficult, I would say, if you're working on a two minute long piece, is just making sure that you can play continuously from the beginning to the end. So just as a fail safe, I need landmarks throughout the piece so that I know sort of I have a general idea of structure wise where it's going. Like, um, my first sort of way that I approach it, like at, for the first time, I'm not trying to remember every note in consecutive order. I'm trying to like remember where it starts, sort of couple things that happen in the middle and in order, and then what happens at the end. And so then when I come back to it to the next day, after having slept on it and that sort of order of events is stronger in my mind, then I fill in the gaps. Because if I just go in consecutive order, note by note by note, it, it, ne it never, I mean, it just takes longer to get to the point where it's fluidly going through the whole piece. So that, that is my technique. You're, you're right. There are associations that I have, you know, with different, intervals and qualities in the music but i i think just the way that i think is makes it harder to describe because i typically think with words so i don't really know what i'm doing other than what i just laid out for you and it, it's not like that that doesn't really explain what's happening 
you know? It's very strange to me that some people don't think with words. I did not realize that until relatively recently. Like, I have an inner monologue all day in which I'm hearing myself think. But, you know, my best friend Graham, he he doesn't think in words, and I just can't fathom what his inner life must be like without that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I have moments where I realized that I wasn't thinking with words, but in the moment it feels like I'm not thinking. Mm -hmm. And then when I look back, it's like, Oh, I was just, you know, I had this feeling that I was following or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's just harder to get a grip. Sorry. Yeah. Back to the memory for a second. I listened to a number of drumming podcasts and on a recent episode somebody was interviewing some old old school drummer and he was saying that like you you haven't learned a song until you can play it without the music and i found that interesting because i so i've been this summer i think we talked about it in our last episode that we did together uh, this, this summer I was learning a lot of Led Zeppelin tunes on the drums, but never once did I learn the song without the music. I just learned to play with the music as I was uh, reading the notes. And yeah. it struck me though, that he was entirely right that I didn't really know the song and that I, I couldn't play it without the music. And I couldn't even play, I could, I knew like the fills by heart. I could play those by heart, but I couldn't like measure by measure, uh, keep track of, I don't know, the, the changes in the, in the bass rhythm, things like that. Yeah. Well, do you notice, do you have a, a better way of describing the difference in knowledge that comes from having memorized something versus just being able to read it and play it? Well, it's not, it's more than that, I would say. It's not just being able to play it from memory because the songs that I'm doing, that I'm learning now, I'm just, I'm just learning them by memory as like, it's kind of like a party trick. It's not that I'm learning them any deeper. It's just that, I'm learning the order of the notes in consecutive order. But for pieces that I spend a lot of time on, I do know them from memory only because I've spent that much more time on them. Uh, Like I don't need to play them from memory. It's just, it's sort of ingrained in me. So it's more than just being able to play it from memory. And I would say, even just the ability to play it from memory, uh, that's not the deepest knowledge uh, you can have of the piece. Like being able to play it backwards. Well, well, I don't think that's really relevant, but uh, like if you could sing everyone else's part for memory, then you would really know it. 
like if you knew what everybody else was doing at every point in the song okay yeah. that okay. that would be yeah, a much that, deeper that's a level yeah and why it makes a difference is because uh it's interactive so you would be responding to what the other people are doing in real time and also if you know what's coming up before you see it on the page you're also able to um, play in a way that anticipates what's coming up so that's why it makes sense that you know it helps to know what's coming up in the music without you that the songs you have had to learn in the most depth are the ones that you've learned for auditions? Uh, for auditions or for recitals. But And are, yeah. are the audition songs typically violin solos or are they accompanied? Uh, when I play them in an audition, it's all solo but there are usually excerpts from larger works parts yeah okay do you bother to learn those other parts by heart just to further i don't know concretize your emotional understanding of the piece in the context in which it came uh, i don't learn them by heart but it definitely helps having played the pieces like in within an orchestra or whatever the ensemble is so that you know what the primary voice is and what the primary sort of vibe of the section is. So if I haven't played it, I definitely listen to it a lot. Um, just to hear how the part that I'm playing is supposed to interact with, um, with everyone else's part in real time. When I used to memorize poetry, I found that like, and some, some poems were like two lines. Some poems were like five pages long that I would memorize. And I found that memorizing them sort of unlocked so much information about the piece. Uh, beyond just what you'd get from reading it even like 50 times just having to the 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 mere act of having to memorize and being able to sort of generate the poem yourself without the paper it gave you a much more detailed or nuanced understanding of the poem's construction yeah, I think also part of it is like when you're performing it or reading it. If if you're not reading it, then that's one less thing you're doing. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. So it takes energy to read. So if you're not having to read, then that's more energy that you can put into the output. You're not doing input and output at the same time. Um, that's, that's something that I've been working on actually is channeling, channeling my energy more directly into things related to, uh, 
you know, sound production or playing. So like having no extraneous energy just put out there that doesn't affect exactly the tone production or some sort of musical goal that I have. It's fascinating how when I am playing the drums, as I think we talked about in our last episode, my focus is wholly on I want I was going to say perfecting my technique, but I'm so far from anything approaching perfection that it's really just I would just say developing my technique. But whereas I'm doing that since your technique is you have a mastery of the technique, your violin playing is uh, for lack of a better word uh, much more philosophical. Uh, and your your training is much more philosophical. Well, or abstract. That, that's kind of that's that's maybe just how I approach it because not everybody thinks of it like. In 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 an abstract way, but um, it helps me a lot of times. I use metaphors because it is hard when you're trying to work on a sense, the kinesthetic sense, you know, things that you can't really describe with words helps to use metaphors. I mean, yeah, because their metaphors are more like images. But um, I would say it's still technique. Like what I'm talking about of channeling my physical energy into sound that anything that relates to the way that you're physically moving is technique. So I'm still working on developing my technique too. And that this, you know, that that's what you're doing too. When you're playing drums, like why is there a proper way to hold the drumstick? Because when you want it, when it bounces up and down, it matters where you hold it to get uh, the right bounce. Sure. So, uh, sure. Ultimately, everything you're doing in the end comes down to technique. But that is somewhat similar to saying that the only purpose of the brain is to get food into your mouth and to, like, reproduce. But clearly there is, I mean, because that's all the brain really does is it gets you to move. But clearly there's so much deeper, there's so much more going on in the brain that you lose out on when you reduce it to this uh, movement control center. Not, I mean, yeah. But I'd say that this still falls into the category of technique, even though it is sort of an abstract level of technique, because there is so much more going on when you're talking about what you can work on when you're playing music, like what your vision is for, uh, for the phrase or for the song or your intention about how you're going to, um, perform a certain piece. That's a much bigger idea. And it's just the technique that you have and the techniques, the techniques that you use affect how, 
um, how you're able to execute your vision. But the vision is much larger. Like obviously the brain is doing much more, many more things than just figuring out how to put a piece of food in your mouth. Right. Right. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that while I'm really focused on my fine motor skills to achieve the sound I want to achieve, you seem to be focused much more on like a deeper, deeper level of sort of um, mental activity to change the way that your music sounds rather than just thinking about moving your digits differently. Like that sort of just happens as a byproduct of the sort of thinking and exploration that you do. Yeah. Whether it's thinking about like what the composer intended or thinking about uh, not having to read so that you can put your soul into the piece or however you want to phrase it. Uh, you're just, it's just, a, it's a different way of improving your technique. Uh, but it sure it does ultimately end up in the violin playing somehow. Well, I think sound, sound production in violin playing is, it can be such a unique thing. Uh, and there's an element of like, what's the difference between somebody that uses the right fine motor skills and just pulls the bow across the string and makes a fine sound and somebody that does that and makes the best sound there's there is some sort of technical difference that they're using as well as obviously artistic vision that maybe a great artist has that somebody that just knows the mechanics is doesn't really have but if we take take away from music for a second, because there's so many sort of complicating factors. If you talk about golf players, golf is such a technique um, focused sport. Um, yet, you know, all these pros are practicing so much. They have so many hours of uh, just consistent coaching and you know, individual work. What What's the difference between them? They can all hit the ball with perfect technique. What's the differences between their technique? Like, there's something beyond uh, just the textbook form that the best players have engaged with that the other ones haven't really mastered right this is a very nice example i don't know i don't question? know golf because oh, i don't okay, play golf question right. i mean that I that's that's why well, i think we've talked i mean a lot about the mental game of tennis and the mental game of golf and it's again in a way, it's like the antithesis of what I'm doing. Uh, when you're playing tennis, if you're trying to hit a ball, like you're not going to hit it the way you want it to. Like you just have to let that part flow. 
uh, and trust that you have the technique developed. When you're in a match, but when you're just yeah. workshopping, you right. you want to structure your game so that you can do that. You can hit the ball without thinking. Right, but I still... And tennis players and golfers need to find a way of trigger, triggering that in themselves. So they practice in a way so that they can access that in the moment. But it both needs to be accessible, like their, their highest level of performance needs to be easily accessible and, uh, and, and consistent so that they, they can do it without thinking. Um, for me, thinking at an abstract level, like describing some sort of the feeling of channeling the energy, say, as an example of like a technical issue that I'm working on is just a way that I have of triggering that feeling of um, efficient fluid motion without thinking, I guess. So my, my last question about memory, and then I think we're good for today is I, I don't know if you've had this ex, if you've had this experience but I've certainly had this experience uh, where I me memorized something for school so that I could say it, I could recite it like a, uh, some sort of speech or something uh, maybe in high school or grade school but then and I know we talked about stage fright last time then I get up to the stage and suddenly like it all goes blank and all that work memorizing then goes out of the drain. If you can't out the drain, if you can't execute on it. So you're learning a piece by heart and then you're not just giving it in front of uh, your sophomore year APOS history class. You're having to go out in front of heads and heads of state and uh, march around and the stakes are much much higher and i'm wondering in particular how you i guess turn it on so to speak and turn out tune off everything else you how you're able to ensure that you can access your memory with high fidelity under those circumstances uh it's in the preparation just it helps to visualize uh, visualize where you're going to be when you're performing it when while you're preparing because so are you doing that right now you're visualizing well, the dinner the thing is that it, that that isn't really a high pressure uh i don't really feel a lot of pressure in that scenario just cuz that's not the, the best example, like more in an audition or a concert, there's more pressure because everybody's, everybody's listening in the dinner. It's a little bit more of a casual, uh, right. And if you make mistakes, nobody's going to notice. Right. I mean, this, the mistakes that you would make given how able you already are. Right. I see. So, so when I am practicing for something that 
I am sort of do, that I do feel is a high stakes uh, situation. I have to visualize myself doing it there while I'm pre preparing and project an image of myself constantly while preparing that I want to maintain when I'm there. So I can project that image of myself no matter my context. Um, so it's a mental game and it's kind of a game emphasis on the game. I mean, obviously it's mental if it's memorizing, but, uh, yeah, that's the main thing. Just visualizing every detail of the concert hall, the audience, the feeling that you have, like sometimes I'll think about, say, I'll think about an audition that I have in a month and try and visualize it so hard that I get nervous, like that feeling in your stomach of just lightness. That's ideal. If you can make yourself get nervous just by thinking of it, it's like, um, you know, it slowly anesthetizes you to it or, uh, it's micro dosing nervousness and it really helps also it it go it went blank for you in your history presentation because you were in a mental different mental state than you were in when you were doing the preparation it was like you were drunk uh and you had never done this speech while drunk or something you know mm -hmm. all right getting drunk in high school a push that's a great way to end this all right i noted visualization because i'd like to talk about that a lot more in depth because we've both talked about and done a lot of visualization over the years yeah. uh together but separately but anyway all right ethan thanks again for joining me i yeah, always learn a lot talk to you. recorded this about 10 times because I'm just so bad at asking for help. But if you could like, subscribe, comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on, that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that I have an audience. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me.